Welcome back to season three of The Capstone. The last months have been challenging for everyone, so I appreciate that you are tuning back in to see what we've been up to. Some of the challenges we've faced will be clear when you listen to the upcoming episodes. During the early part of the pandemic, we recorded these interviews via Zoom, in some cases while on two different continents with varying degrees of connectivity, equipment, and technical assistance. But because the conversations and the topics were so great, we decided to keep it real and just go with what we have. I hope you'll forgive the occasional blurb or audio inconsistencies and will enjoy season three as much as I have. The episodes you'll hear include more great ideas, more great research, and the ever-impressive graduate students at Prescott College who join me to talk about their final capstone projects, which are done in fulfillment of their Master of Science degree in Sustainable Food Systems. I want to mention that the first two seasons of the podcast, that's 13 episodes in all, can be found on our website, www.thecapstone.info, I-N-F-O. Please give them a listen. So today we're going to be talking about seeds, and I'm guessing by now many of you are aware of how something as small as a seed has become such a very big deal. It all comes down to the fact that seeds are the basic input for food production, and without seeds, there would obviously be no food. And since eating isn't really an option, politics and power have made the topic of seeds critical to the discourse around human rights, sustainable food systems, and regenerative agriculture. As the industrial food system continues to consolidate with governments extending intellectual property rights to those developing hybrid and genetically modified crops, seed production and distribution has become commercialized to the point where it it makes it nearly impossible for farmers to save their own seeds for perpetual use. This makes farmers vulnerable to market forces, exposing them to price fluctuations and into dependent relationships with seed corporations who produce fewer crop varieties, and especially varieties of seed that have acclimatized to specific bioregions, poses a threat to global food security as well, making food, especially industrialized food production, vulnerable to disease and changes in climate. My guest today, Laurel Baylog became interested in agrobiodiversity, seed sovereignty, and the role of saved seeds in creating resilient agricultural systems. Focused on her home region of St. Lawrence County, New York, Laurel constructed, distributed, and analyzed surveys that assessed seed system strengths and weaknesses. She's with me today to share a bit about that project and what she learned. So, um, a more personal note, when I started working on farms after college, um, my motivations were focused mainly on learning how to grow and produce my own food in a way that was not harmful to the environment. And I quickly realized that there are so many different facets to farming, and I had taken seeds and their significance for our food systems, our cultures, and livelihoods for granted. So this capstone has also allowed me to further learn about seeds and their crucial contributions to our food and lives. On this episode of The Capstone, I'll be talking with Laurel Baylog. Laurel came to the MSFS program at Prescott College through her undergraduate studies in ecology and natural resource management. 
After graduating, Laurel worked on a number of livestock and vegetable farms in the Northeastern United States, most recently managing St. Lawrence University's Environmental Studies Department Living Laboratory, which is a hundred acre tract of land used for undergraduate courses and research. Laurel's academic interests include food and agricultural policy, food justice, and agrobiodiversity. Following graduation from Prescott College, she hopes to engage with nonprofit organizations or government agencies to develop, monitor, and evaluate food systems interventions. Hi, Laurel. Welcome to the Capstone. Hi, Lisa. Thank you. It's so nice to chat with you today. Likewise. Well, I know you're finishing up your capstone as we speak, so I appreciate that you're taking a few valuable minutes to join me today to talk about your project. So let's start at the top. What's your working title? Of course. So my working title is, is the Opportunities and Challenges for Enhancing the Seed and Food Systems in Northern New York. Wow, awesome. There's, there's just so much that's interesting and important in the world of seeds, to be sure. So um, I'm thinking, why don't we just start with seeds and connection to place? Because it seems like from your title that your study is bounded by a specific geography, right? Right, that's correct. Uh, my, my project takes place in St. Lawrence County, New York. Okay, in the county. So is this your personal bioregion? Yes, I've been living here for about five years now. Okay, where did you live before that? Just curious. Oh, well, so we lived in Pennsylvania, Maine, but I grew up in New Jersey. Okay, so yeah, the Eastern Quadrant anyway, huh? <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Well, I'm always curious about how bioregional perspectives impact the ways folks feel about food systems work. And because your project is sort of engaging with a particular area, I'm wondering if a bioregional sense was at all appropriate or helpful to you as you worked on this project? Yeah, so a bioregional perspective definitely helped me when I designed this project. Um, they're, they're so important when discussing food systems because so many times the exchanges of food or ideas and cultures, they don't necessarily stop at politically defined borders. And I consider my bioregion to be the area where the St. Lawrence River Valley meets the Adirondack foothills and the Adirondack Mountains. And so when I was developing my project, I was thinking about the deep history of this place and the significant changes there have been in the land, the environment and people. And these bioregional perspectives helped me to understand the different groups of people here, the different agricultural systems that are here, which led me to wonder about the potential seed systems in the area. And the framing of my project within St. Lawrence County mainly stems as a way for me to narrow in the scope of this study since it was the first one I've done and all the processes were new to me. Right, well, you know, it's so very important, as you said, to sort of recognize that some of these things do extend um, beyond sort of politically defined um, boundaries, but oftentimes collecting data is more difficult <laughs> when you. <laughs> so um, you know, confining this to to a, a county um, certainly does takes nothing away from a bioregional perspective. So that's really a, a great answer. Um, I just love seed saving, and it's it's such a dense topic. 
everything from the cultural implications of what kinds of seeds are saved and for that matter, what social and political factors determine if seed saving will even remain possible for the average person um, to issues of food sovereignty, food security, biodiversity. So, you know, it's just really great to see that you are thinking about um, some of these issues with your capstone. And it, it's such a multifaceted topic. I'm wondering what sparked your interest in seed saving as a capstone project topic. Well, so the, the inspiration for my project um, comes from my interest in how agricultural and food policy have shaped our food systems and the literature that discusses how changes in intellectual property rights on seeds have led to decreases in crop species and diversity, along with decreases in seed options and saving rates. Since seeds are the foundation for our crop production and many plants we eat, the loss of agrobiodiversity, which is broadly can be defined as um, the different plants and or animals within an agricultural system, and the loss of food and seed sovereignty, which broadly can be defined as the ability to control how food and seeds are accessed and produced, can create vulnerabilities in our food systems, especially during times of stress or shocks. And also on um, a more personal note, when I started working on farms after college, um, my motivations were focused mainly on learning how to grow and produce my own food in a way that was not harmful to the environment. And I quickly realized that there are so many different facets to farming and I had taken seeds and their significance for our food systems, our cultures and livelihoods for granted. So this capstone has also allowed me to further learn about seeds and their crucial contributions to our food and lives. I really appreciate that you took the, a moment or two to define biodiversity and food sovereignty, because those are terms that, um, that we often throw around very liberally. We, we talk about them a lot. <laughs> There might be people listening who really um, either um, you know, have questions about that or um, would be interested to see how it is that you define it. So I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, you were growing your own food. I assume that you are a seeds <laughs> then, is that right? <laughs> yep, we, I do save some seeds. Yeah, great. Well, tell us some of your favorite varieties or what you, what you do save. Sure, so we, I don't save as much as I would like, um, but some of the seeds we save are like dry beans, watermelon, sweet, sweet peppers and potatoes and others. And one in particular that is probably the most important to my partner and I is a tomato paste variety that we call Corsalo. And it produces a really great uniform paste tomato. And the seed was, in, was actually bred informally by someone in New Jersey who has since passed away. And we don't know who else might have these seeds. We both grew up in New Jersey. All, and um, so there's ties to home for us with these seeds too. Right, that's really neat um, because that's, that's another level um, about thinking about seeds is that connection to place, but also that they are you know, um, acclimatized. So they probably do very well there um, as opposed mm -hmm. to um, many people who just grow heirloom seed varieties, which is great for biodiversity, but um, not necessarily from their region, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, well, I know you are, or maybe you have just finished <laughs> 
compiling the data from your study. Um, let's talk about how you obtained the information from folks and what kinds of things you were looking at specifically. Sure. So I designed and developed a survey that targeted seed savers in the area. And the survey was web-based and I created it using an online survey platform. And it primarily focused on finding what is grown and saved, what important varieties and traditional crops are grown and why in the area, what sources people use for their saved seeds and how much these sources might contribute to the saved seeds and the quantities available, um, all to understand potential strengths and weaknesses of the local seed system. And the bulk of the survey contained a large list of different food and medicinal plants that I created for people to indicate if they grew or grew and saved the plant to look for richness or the counts of different plants grown and saved, along with the percentages of participants growing and saving these plants, and then, and then the number of varieties saved for these plants. So what story do you think the combined data <laughs> beginning to tell? That's a lot of really juicy stuff to put together to tell a story. <laughs> yeah, there, there are a lot of things going on. And so about 70% of the approximately 60 plants from the survey plant list are being saved, which does show you know, some significant locally adapted plant and resiliency potentials. And about 30% of the plants grown are not being saved. And this can lead to an opportunity to increase the saving from these plants. And these plants include crops such as collards, cauliflower, leeks. Um, and there are additionally other plants that are not grown or saved at high rates. And increasing the, these rates of crops can also help provide for more agrobiodiversity and resiliency potentials. Um, but I do think further discussion with growers on their desires to increase saving and growing of different crops uh, would be a good thing to do because many respondents seem to save seeds to ensure high quality crops mm -hmm. and for reasons relating to seed sovereignty. So important varieties are often grown for practical re reasons such as taste and being easy to grow and vegetable quality. And the crops that are not saved or grown at high rates may or may not provide these things for respondents. And there's also the component with the sourcing and the majority of respondents seem to use their own seeds and seeds from market sources, but the amount and availability that these sources provide vary. There are other sources that are used such as seed fairs, swaps and seed libraries, but often they don't necessarily provide significant amounts of seeds for the respondents. And also some participants indicated that their own seed stock quantities are less available and not enough. And some indicated quantities from other sources are just moderately available and just enough. And so from these results and in terms of seed supply chains, improving respondents' own stocks and some informal seed source networks, they, that could create additional pathways to enhance agrobiodiversity and seed sovereignty in the area. 
Yeah, that's, I was kind of curious about if you get as far, you know, with your analysis, do you offer ideas on how to increase the number of plants grown or, or not? So that's something that I have been thinking about and I'm, haven't fully determined yet. And I think that's where there could be more investigation into this with directly talking with growers and seed savers in the area um, to see, you know, what sources might be, what they might, what sources they might prefer if they do, if they would like to swap more with people more informally or things like that and seeing how, um, if they are interested in that, then that there could be some sort of um, movement towards that shifting in the, for the, in the seed system. Right, perfect. Well, that's your next research project. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do talk about the project and, and the challenges of the project itself, because no capstone is, is really without them. Um, I know from personal experience that just the logistics involved in implementing and collecting data from surveys is, is no simple matter. Um, I guess anytime you're working directly with people, you have to be prepared for just about anything. Um, so I'm wondering about what challenges you encountered. I can definitely relate to that, all these things you mentioned, Lisa. And there were definitely a lot of different things to consider when I created this survey and project. I had never done anything like this before. And so, one challenge that sticks out to me was with my was with my recruitment for the survey. Um, during my project design, I had originally planned to do both paper and web-based surveys, and I had intended to distribute information on the survey at local events and post flyers about this study at community spaces to try to get more people involved. And I began implementing my project in last spring, right around the time COVID-19 began to emerge in the United States. It sounds like and, a pre-COVID strategy that got <laughs> or disrupted. Oh my goodness, you do. Yeah. And so because of all the shutdowns and uncertainty with COVID-19, I changed my recruitment methods to just be web-based surveys. And I'm very grateful to those who participated and that I was able to gather the responses I did but I did fall a little short of my target for responses mm -hmm. for the number of responses I had. And so, and I wasn't able to reach other potential participants in person, but this also has helped me learn to be adaptive while conducting research. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, but you were working with human subjects, so you probably needed to go through the IRB process, right? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, this is something, you know, researchers who are working with human populations have to do before beginning their research. And so um, for folks listening, I wonder um, who may be a little bit unfamiliar with that term, the Institutional Review Board is what IRB stands for. Um, I wondered if you could explain this a little bit more and kind of what you had to go through to engage with that process. Sure, of course. So the Institutional Review Board at Prescott College is basically an administrative body that makes sure investigators who are using human beings as research, research subjects are acting ethically and are compliant with state, federal, international regulations to make sure no one is harmed or put unduly at risk during the study. 
And so since my research involves seed savers, I had to complete a training about protecting human research participants. And I also had to complete an IRB proposal review form that outlined my overall project. And this included my proposed methods, my survey questions, my recruitment information, my consent forms, data processes, pretty much everything involved in my project so that the members of Prescott College's IRB clearly understood my project and processes. And then once that was submitted, it was reviewed and then people are, and then you're contacted regarding the status of your project, basically if it's approved or not, or if you can make some changes and things like that and resubmit. And it was a little daunting to me at first, but the IRB process is really necessary and it really helped me think out my entire project before I started it. Yeah, thanks for detailing that a little bit. I think maybe some folks who have not engaged in this type of research don't understand the lengths to which, you know, uh, one needs to prepare and, and go through um, these these exercises before beginning a project, you know, it's just you just don't go out and start asking questions of people. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's significant, but as you said, very, very, very important. Um, yeah, you know, I actually conducted a survey uh, several years ago of Appalachian seed savers to examine, you know, what kinds of seeds were being saved, why folks were saving seeds and how they were doing it. And it was actually part of a kind of a larger compare and contrast project um, that was um, being done um, with some Ecuadorian seed savers by some colleagues that were working in that country. But um, at any rate, I, I was surprised, kind of and not surprised at the same time, um, to see that Appalachian folks reported doing less seed saving, both in terms of the number of plants and the varieties of plants um, over time. So in other words, you know, uh, if they started saving seeds 20 years ago, they're saving uh, fewer seeds and fewer varieties now. Uh, although they are still doing it. Although some actually reported that they just didn't do it anymore um, for a variety of reasons. But um, but the people that were reporting that they were doing less, it was just really due to the convenience of it being easier to buy heirloom varieties. Um, they liked the idea of growing heirlooms for many of the reasons that you talked about, why people would like to save seeds. Um, but it didn't really you know, seem to matter much if they were um, saved seeds that were rooted in their own place and culture, uh, which was, you know, a little bit surprising. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering in your study, if there have been any results that surprised you or that are emerging, you know, that, you know, you're like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, or, you know, seem to point to a significant shift in the future of seed saving. Well, this is super interesting to me too, Lisa, like your, your study and I, love to talk more about this with you at some point. Um, and one thing that this brings up uh, for me are the challenges that seed savers discuss. And it might not be very surprising, but many respondents said that some of the challenges they experienced with seed saving relate to time. Mm -hmm. And these issues ranged from time in general, but also things like time for seed development, correct timing, to harvest seeds, time to process seeds, even time just to learn how to seed save. And some of these timing issues may be due to sh a shorter 
growing season here and could be helped through more selective breeding. But the discussions of time in general, time to process or time to learn, to me seem challenging to address when trying to enhance our seed systems because there can be so many things people are trying to balance in our lives. And granted, there are some people who said that they encounter minimal challenges or no challenges. Um, and some people cited things with growing issues and general seed saving issues. Um, but this is something that I'm not sure how we can, you know, kind of try to work around. But I think further discussions with seed savers about their challenges might be able to help brainstorm more solutions to these issues. Yeah, and you know, and I'm also wondering like um, the role of markets in this, like I said, you know, folks feel like, oh, it's, it's just easy enough. I can buy heirloom seeds quite easily and I don't have to go through all of the time requirements and space requirements, you know, to, to actually save my own seeds. Um, and also, um, you can buy heirloom varieties at your grocery store. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> yep. Market and stuff. So I'm kind of curious also, you know, how that all plays in with um, the future of seed saving and, and people's motivation um, for mm -hmm. that. So yeah, it is really an interesting topic for sure. Um, so, you know, you've articulated a little bit about why you wanted to do this and, uh, and you know, kind of what you, what you hope to get out of it, but um, let's go aspirationally. <laughs> <laughs> what is your aspirational goal for this capstone? Well, I'd like the capstone to be a way to just start a more potentially cohesive discussion on seed saving and how that relates to our local food system in the area. Um, I think there can be more investigations into the seed system, you know, potentially asking if seed savers are interested in expanding what they grow or save or investigating seed sources more, um, just talking with seed savers or people who are interested in seed saving. Um, and also to, I'd, I'd like for it to, you know, spark some interest for people to start trying to grow food or maybe start seed saving if they aren't already. Wonderful. Well, that's great. And, and I would like to um, welcome back um, Dr. Robin Curry to the program at this point. Um, hi, Robin. Hi, thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, we're, we're always glad that you're here. Um, and you have uh, lots that you can um, talk about with regard to uh, Laurel's project. I'd like to hear from you about, you know, working with Laurel on the project as her advisor. Yeah, thank you. It was, it's super fun as a, as a professor and as a, you know, an academic food system activist to, you know, find students and be able to work with students who are, you know, studying exactly that thing that that you yourself care deeply about. So, you know, my my own research um, was based heavily on um, on seed saving, and not just seeds, uh, but on uh, propagation of plants. Right. So, grafting is another way that we save our our uh, varieties uh, for fruit trees, for example. But you know, uh, propagation. Uh, sovereignty doesn't have the same ring to it as uh, as seed sovereignty does, of course. <laughs> uh, 
but all of it matters, right? Tuber sovereignty, you know? but all, all of that falls under the umbrella of, um, you know, of this seed sovereignty. And, and, you know, we really are at a, a turning point uh, globally. And uh, this is why I was excited about Laurel's work. And then also, um, you know, we have a, another student here at, at, uh, at Prescott College and, uh, and Green Mountain College, another student of mine, Alex Wenger, was studying um, uh, seed saving and seed sovereignty in Pennsylvania amongst um, uh, recent and not so recent immigrants to the United States. So, you know, he was looking at the Falamchin uh, the Hmong and also Mennonites, um, and looking at, at their seed systems. And, um, you know, and the, the reality is that, you know, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, that um, we have lost, the world has lost 75% uh, of our plant genetic diversity since 1900. Wow. And it's just gone there's, you don't get that back, you know, cause we're, we're vulnerable. It's a seed, right? So if it's not planted, they only live for so long. And then those varieties that, you know, were curated by and tended by folks to be successful in, you know, that place, that bioregion, those soils and that local climate condition are just gone. And so it's easy to become, you know, we, we should be concerned like that, that keeps me waking up each day and going to work. Um, but there's also um, hope and, you know, what we know about, um, you know, conservation of plant genetic diversity is that currently, I, here's another 75% for you, you know, 75% of the world's plant genetic diversity is held by small farmers. Right. And so it's it's all of us in our, you know, front yards and backyards. And then, of course, you know, slightly larger scales in, um, you know, it depends on your country context and your cultural context and how important, you know, food gardening is uh, for your family and your needs. But that helps us start to understand, you know, where uh, we need to be paying attention uh, for conserving plant genetic diversity. So it's with the folks that Laurel was interviewing, right, in St. Lawrence County, and you know the folks that uh, Alex Wenger was working with in um, in Pennsylvania. They're they're the curators and uh, the conservationists. Because the other, this is not a seventy five percent number, but here's the sixty percent number. Um, seeds. <laughs> you know, when you're purchasing them from the store, the reality of this, and this is um, Philip Howard's um, important research in um, consolidation and looking at market structures in the food system, 60% of the global seed market is controlled by four companies. Think about what those companies are. <laughs> they're, um, they're chemical companies. Yeah. It's Bayer, Dow, uh, ChemChina, and BASF. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's, there are concerns and issues here. And, um, you know, the opportunities for conserving this important plant genetic diversity um, lies with the smallholder farmers. And so it's the folks that Laurel was interviewing to try to understand, you know, what is the situation for seed security 
in that region and what are the opportunities for enhancing that and, and conserving that and honoring um, you know, local ecological knowledge, uh, which is what we all hold, those of us who are seed saving and um, you know, trying to figure out ways how to pass that on. So it was so fun uh, to work with Laurel and uh, you know, even, well, I should say, especially small localized um, studies like this are really important because if we can be conducting these in all of our you know communities and um, comparing you know like your study in uh, um, that you were spoke speaking of you know my own work in in Kyrgyzstan and Central Asia Alex's work in Pennsylvania and you know the hundreds of other uh, researchers who um, care about seed and seed sovereignty, then we can start to get a better uh, picture of uh, you know what the situation is and how, how we can support this important uh, role of curation of our of our food. Yeah, you know, and it, and what you the points you bring up, Robin, um, you know, all come back to consolidation and the, the number of, of seeds held by smallholder farmers. Um, it brings it all back to this connection with food policy, which I know also Laurel is an interest of yours. Um, did you do you have any thoughts? Did anything come to mind as you're doing this with regard to food policy and the future of seed saving? Those are. Uh... Great questions, Lisa. And it's still something that can just seem so daunting to me. Um, and I think really what it can come down to is trying to just enhance these more informal networks and potentially seed swapping and like at seed fairs and seed libraries and things like that um, to try to keep varieties alive. Um, that aren't dependent on buying seeds from a catalog because potentially there could be, you like one variety in a seed catalog one year and it's not available the next. Um, right. So I think just trying to think about more about like informal networks and how those can also help to kind of keep these important seeds um, alive and viable for uh, people and culture and things like that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, those informal um, social networks, basically, there's a sort of solidarity in that that can apply gentle pressure to um, local uh, municipalities and so forth for like, you know, front yard gardening um, policies and things, you know, that help people, uh, enable people to be able to, to garden uh, and to do this sort of stuff or, or have seed swaps and have that sort of sanctioned in some way or recognized. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways that sort of the um, smaller, more informal networks can, you know, sort of come together and, um, sort of present, um, they can come together with a sort of a solidarity that can move things forward on a policy level. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that and asking that question, Lisa, because I think, you know, when, when we're looking at the super local level, um, you know, the policies that govern what we can and cannot do in our own front yards and backyards are ordinances. 
you know, the, the local town and city ordinances and um, actually homeowners associations also. And many of them uh, do have policies in place about how tall the vegetation can be in uh, the front yard um, or the backyard. And some of them out and out um, uh, don't permit uh, uh food growing uh, because of concerns about the aesthetics of um, what that looks like compared to the aesthetics of, you know, a nice green lawn that contributes nothing to our food security. Um, so, you know, that's one piece to look at. Um, but the other piece on a global level, there's a couple other things going on. And that's about you know, when you have a, a food plant, you know, and you have those those seeds or you have the propagation material like the uh, who's who, who owns that? Right. You know, and who gets to, um, you know, claim that and then potentially profit from it if it is, um, you know, quote unquote, commercially viable um, uh, variety. And so, you know, we you know, in terms of seed sovereignty, we're operating at local level and there's lots of things that we can do at the local level, but we also need to be mindful of, you know, these global dynamics, you know, just to repeat, it's like four firms you know, controlling 60% of seeds, you know, and then what kind of agency does, you know, an individual smallholder farmer, you know, have over, you know, the seeds that, that they're saving. So, you know, the, these exchange networks, I mean, what the literature tells us and actually Laurel's research um, also showed this, that, you know, um, families, you know, growers who self-propagate or get uh, seeds and plant material from neighbors and relatives um, tend to have higher um, diversity in their, um, in their growing. And so they really are kind of the key to this. So what we know, what the global literature shows us is that uh, growers who have a higher portion of their plants in their gardens or farms that are self-propagated or that they got them from their neighbors or their relatives, you know, tend to have a higher um, diversity, plant genetic diversity in their farms and gardens. So really, this exchange is really important for the conservation of the world's plant genetic diversity. But then, you know, who owns that? So it's this tension of, you know, this open exchange is really important. But then it means that, you know, an actor could come in and then claim that that's theirs. You know, but whose knowledge was it that created it? And this is a real um, complicated policy question that folks are actively engaged in um, and have been for some time to try to protect that, um, you know, ownership of. And then there's even, you know, that's a cultural concept, right, too, about whose seed is it and who owns that knowledge. But anyway. There's lots of work for graduate students to continue to do <laughs> on, on these questions around um, seed sovereignty and the, and the policy aspects of it also in research like Laurel's helps contribute to our understanding of what the issues are and what the possible solutions might be. Well, I think you're right. These are complex and interesting issues as always. Um, and so I really wanna thank you, Laurel and Robin for diving in. Uh, and being guests on the podcast. Best of luck to you, Laurel, on the completion of your capstone. 
Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Capstone, a podcast produced by the Sustainable Food Systems Program at Prescott College. This is a podcast series that celebrates the potential for a more just and resilient food system by showcasing the research and fresh new perspectives presented by graduate students in the program. As a culmination of their graduate work, students present a capstone project, an opportunity to impact food systems in their communities and bioregions, drawing on the coursework and the expertise of faculty members. The podcast is offered as an insider's view to some of the most pressing issues involving food systems today, expressed through interviews, stories, and lived experiences. In addition to hearing from the graduate students, we explore the significance of their work in the context of creating food systems change with community leaders and faculty members that serve as student advisors. The Master of Science in Sustainable Food Systems at Prescott College is an online degree offering three areas of concentration, food justice, sustainable diets and biodiversity, and food entrepreneurship. Prescott College also offers a dual degree, combining the Master of Business Administration in Sustainable Leadership and the Master of Science in Sustainable Food Systems. If you're interested and want some more information, see www prescott.edu.